Our Old Testament reading today is Psalm chapter 2. We'll be reading the second Psalm. If you want to turn there with me, you'll find it in your pew Bibles on page 448. Hear then the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can imagine uh, that the original hearers of Psalm 2 may have asked, in what way can God say that he has a son? In, In what way does he mean this? Because we know that in one sense, Israel was the son of God, the firstborn son. He calls them just that in the book of Exodus. This is how they were referred to. So maybe it's speaking of the nation, or maybe it's speaking of the king of Israel, who it's often referred to as the son of God. But this is actually a a passage that along with so many others in Scripture, are are slowly over time revealing to God's people uh, a reality that's far greater than that. It's far greater than just the nation of Israel, just the king of Israel. This is revealing something about the eternal Son of God. Here he's referred to as the anointed one. We spoke about this last week, the Christ. That's what anointed one means. Remember Peter's confession of Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We should hear passages like this in the background when we hear phrases like that. Now in this psalm, we're told that the Lord laughs specifically at at these kingdoms of mankind that would rebel against him, that would fight against him. And why does he laugh? Why is it so absurd, almost ridiculous, that any would try to fight against him? He says because he has established his own king in the world, this anointed one. The kings of the earth, presidents, czars, Caesars, dictators, whoever they may be, right? The rulers of the earth representing all of mankind. They have nothing on what he has established. God's king is now here. He's been set up in Zion, in Jerusalem, from where he reigns. And so there's a warning, kiss the son. Right? Submit to him. Serve him. 
All governing powers on this earth are told that they must submit themselves to Christ, the Son of God. They must show him allegiance. And if not, they will perish in the way. If not, they will face the wrath of God. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter where they are. Everything boils down to that. Everyone must submit to Christ, the King. And so we know this is speaking of Jesus. We know that it's speaking of him in large part because it's quoted many times of him in the New Testament. So we know that this psalm is looking forward to when he came. In the book of Hebrews, this passage is used to speak about the ascension of Christ. That when he ascended on high to the right hand of God the Father, he was established at that point. He was shown to be what he is. But it's not as though he became the Son of God. He already was the Son of God. But at that point, it was declared to all. It was shown to all. Right? Think very similar to the language of this. What, what does Jesus say right before he ascends on high? Right? All power and authority on earth have been given to me and in heaven. It's, it's all mine, right? It's all been given to me. Very similar to what we hear here. And so he was, he was established and shown to be who he is, the Son of God eternally begotten, eternally God. God then has a son who, though he is the fulfillment of Israel, the, the firstborn, right, he is the, the fulfillment of that, and even though he is the, the fulfillment of the, the king, the true king of Israel, the son of David that would come, he's also far more than that. He's also far more because he is the word of God that was from the beginning. And this is where I want us to just meditate on. Okay, hold, hold this in your mind. This is really kind of encapsulates what we're focusing on today in, in many ways. Is this last line. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Right? Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son of God. We'll talk more about that. But think on that. Right? Dwell on it. Meditate on it. What does that mean? What does it look like? In part, it's what we're even doing now. But what does it mean to be taking refuge in Him? That's where blessing is found. If you want blessing, right? we don't have to do a show of hands. I think we all want to be blessed. Where is blessing found? It's found for those who take refuge in him. Our New Testament reading today is from the epistle of 1 John. If you want to turn there with me, we'll be looking at 1 John chapter 4. We'll just be reading verse 13 to 16. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13 to 16. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides 
in him. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. Now we've been uh, working through a series on the foundations of the faith and we've spoken about uh, Christ, especially his mission in this world, what he came to do and to accomplish. But it's right, it's good that we pay attention not just to what he came to do, but also who he is, right? That he is the eternally begotten son of God. This is, this is right to meditate on, right? Because this is the scripture, what the scripture reveals to us. That he was not simply a, a good man that gave us moral principles to follow, but rather he, he was and is God of God, light of light. Very God of very God, just as we sung earlier today. We're told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that because Jesus is the Son of God, it is through Him that we have access to God. It is through Him that we know God. It is through Him that God has revealed Himself to us. It is through the Son that we have access to the Father. And blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Because He is the eternally begotten Son of God, so now you can be a child of God. Because Jesus is the love of the Father, so you can know God's love. Right? And that is a true blessing. And so we're in 1 John because 1 John speaks quite a bit. Actually, John, the apostle who wrote the epistles of John, Revelation, as well as the gospel of John, really he spends much of his writing teaching us this truth, teaching us about the Son of God and what that means. And so we're going to look here about what this teaches us about the Son of God, as well as then what it means what it teaches us that we too can be sons of God. Much of this epistle in 1 John uh, speaks of the idea of abiding in Christ or abiding in the Father, abiding in God or God abiding in us. It is through the Son and by the Spirit that God abides in you and you in God if you are in Christ. We often use a term union, right? Union with Christ, that we are united to him. That's what we speak of when we're speaking of this aspect of the Christian life. We're so united to Christ by faith that when he died, we're told in the scripture that we died. Right? When he rose from the dead, so did you, if you've believed. Right? You, you are new in him. You, you have the, the same spirit that rose him from the dead dwelling in you. You're so united to him that our relationship to him is pictured as a body and a head. Right? He is the head. We are the body of Christ. Right? And how united is the head to the body? It, so much so it's one. You lose one, you lose the other. That's how united we are to him. And John uses this language of abiding to describe that reality. That's what he's talking about.
talking about, to abide, to, to dwell within, to take refuge in, we might say. And this is a glorious reality. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So it's by the spirit that we abide in him. Verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. You remember that John was an apostle. He was an eyewitness to Jesus, to his ministry, to his resurrection and his ascension. He was one of the three apostles that was in the the inner relationship amongst the apostles, right, with Jesus. He had a a closer relationship to Christ than even some of the other apostles, right? He's referred to as as the beloved disciple. So he's in the inner circle, and he plays a particular role in making known to us this reality that Christ is the Son of God. He says we have seen and testified. We've seen and testified that the Father sent the Son to be a Savior. Now, obviously, John experienced Christ and saw him in many different ways. He heard Christ speaking to him. He heard his teaching. We know that he would have seen all of this, and this would have been clear to him at the ascension. Right? He's seen Christ rise from the dead, and now he sees him ascend on high to the right hand of the Father. But even before that, God had made it known to him that this was the Son of God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we're told that Jesus, when he went up this mountain, he took three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. And while they were up on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured. He was transformed in such a way that they beheld him in all of his glory, the glory that he had before time began. They saw him as he was without the kind of veil that he was wearing in his earthly ministry. So we're told this in Luke chapter 9, that after they see him in his glory, shining forth, right, bright white it says, that then a cloud comes and covers the mountain says this, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So the son was revealed to these three disciples in all of his glory, at least in the way that they could see it. What's so amazing about this is that we're told that no one can see God and live. No one can see God, and yet God allows himself to be known, to be seen through the Son. God is not unknowable. He is knowable because of the Son. While I was working through this passage and writing this sermon the same morning in an audio Bible that I'm listening through. I listened through the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. You remember, Jacob is going to meet his brother Esau. He sends everyone else across the river and he stays. And then he wrestles with this this angel of the Lord, this, this man out of nowhere just appears and he's wrestling with him. 
And afterward, after this experience, Jacob says, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life was delivered. The, the same thing is happening, right? That there is an intermediary that allows God to be known and seen in the way that he can be known and seen, right? And this is a great mystery, not because we're not told about it, it it's here, but because it's so high and, and incredible, right? It's so much higher above our intellect that Jesus is the eternal son of God. He was not just a man that was being controlled in some way by God, right? He was not just God, but he just made himself look like a man for a little while before he went back to heaven. No, he, he was completely God from the start, completely God, completely man, fully God, fully man, true God and true man. And that matters. It, I know that sometimes when we get into these sorts of things, it might begin to seem esoteric. It doesn't really matter. No, it matters because this is how God has made himself known. It, but it's, it is how. It's, I'm not just saying it is you know, a way that we know something about God. No, the way that God has revealed himself is by the word, is by the Son. It's through the Son. That's why this matters. It's hard to even know what words to use to communicate that. But we know God because we know the Son. And John testifies about this because he was an eyewitness. Right? We, we've seen, we testify that the Father sent the Son to save the world. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. This is why this, this matters. Right? This is why it's, it's revealed to us like it is. If you confess that Jesus is the son of God, then God himself dwells in you abides in you and you abide in him right god will dwell in you because the son will dwell in you by the spirit the god of the universe abiding in you and you in him and confess here doesn't just mean if you just say this out loud right? it's not just like a mantra you just get to repeat certain words and this will happen Right? Confess. This is, this is to believe. Right? What do you believe? I believe that he is the son of God. You have to believe it. Right? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God? To believe in him is to have union with him. It's to be united to him. It's to have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. This is one of the reasons why it's such a strange and foreign concept to the scripture that somebody could be a, a Christian, but it would not like affect anything about their life, right? The idea of a Christian in name only, but it doesn't, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't transform anything. Because to be a believer, right, to believe in him is to be united to him. So much so that he abides in you and you are in him. 
You don't think that's going to have an effect. Of course it will, right? You don't think that will change something? Of course it will. It's, this is part of the motivation we have for our sanctification, for following him. It's because he, he dwells within us and we dwell within him. Right? Are you following this? So often it can seem as though God is distant Right? And we'll say things like, I, w- I want to know God better, but he seems so far away. No, if you confess that he is the son of God, he abides in you. Right? He, you abide in him. I, do you get the sense of how close you are? Right? There's nothing in between you and him. There's nothing that stands between you. But you have to believe in him. Not just say that you believe. You have to actually submit your life completely to him. To let it go. Right? Lord, I am yours. And you'll not only know him then, which would be great in itself. Right? Just to know him in a distant sort of a way. Right? Like you're a couple steps removed, but you have some connection to him. No. What this is saying is that your whole life is bound up with the life and the glory and the plan of God himself. That's what this is saying. When you truly confess the Son, it's it's not like you can now start to learn things about God that no one else learns, like a student and he the teacher. It's not like you had a job with a bad boss Right? And now you've got a new job and you kind of like your boss a little bit more. He's a bit nicer to you. Right? So you're, just, you're a little bit closer. It's not, it's not removed like that. No, he, he dwells within you. When you confess the Son, you are completely bound up into the fullness of God. You are sanctified because he dwells in you and you in him. You're glorified that is made to be like him. To reflect him fully. That happens because he abides in you, you abide in him. Jesus Christ is the fullness, we're told, that fills all in all. He fills everything. You're made to be filled by him. In the words of the Apostle Peter, you you are, by faith, a partaker in the divine nature. You reflect him. This means that you have too low a view of how much God loves you and cares for you. You have too low a view. You don't quite get it. Because he loves you like he loves himself. Because he dwells within you. And you dwell within him. How much does the Father love the Son? Well, if you are united to the Son, if you are one with him... He loves you as he loves the Son. God is love, and that love abides in you, it says. This is how central confessing the Son of God is. It is the Son that makes known to us God. It's by the Spirit that we can come to the Father. It's through the Son that we are made partakers of God and filled with God. Now, we've already 
you know, mention this, but it is important that we talk about in what way Jesus is the Son of God. Because, as we said earlier in the Old Testament reading, he's not just the Son of God in the sense that he is the fulfillment of Israel. Right? The Bible speaks of the Son of God in a lot of different ways. Right? Israel is called the Son of God at times, the firstborn Son. The king of Israel is called the son of God. There are angelic beings that are referred to as the sons of God. And you too, if you have believed, you, the church, you are called sons of God or children of God. But Jesus is in a different class altogether. This is why scripture refers to him as the only begotten son of God. According to his human nature, Jesus was presented to be the Son of God. He was shown to be the Son of God at his ascension, and yet he always was the Son of God. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. One God in Trinity, Trinity in unity. And that's the faith that we confess, right? To deny that, right? To deny that is just to deny the Christian faith altogether. John brings it all together like this, right? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. He he boils it all down to that because this is who he is from the beginning. He is the Son because he is begotten of the Father. That is to say that the Father, it's not to say rather, that the Father in some sense is the real God and then, you know, Jesus is just, you know, he was created first or, or he's just kind of like God but he just shares in the divine nature or something. He's, he's like lesser than. That's not what we mean when we say that God, the Father's Father. No, he is God. All that is in God is God. He is not just the real God and then the Son is something different. It's easy to fall into that mode of thinking. He's he's not born of the Father or begotten of the Father in the way that we are born of our fathers. He wasn't created. He wasn't something that came afterward. No, he always was and always has been. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. I know it's hard to understand. I know it's hard to to grasp. I know it seems kind of distant. And it's okay that it it is weighty. It's difficult. Because we're speaking of God himself. But it matters because this is how we actually know him. This is how God is not some distant force that you cannot know. No, you can know him because you can confess that Jesus was the Son of God. Right? Because you can know the Son of God, you can know God. He is the full revelation of the Godhead. No lesser deity. To see him then is to see God in the truest sense. So what does it mean then that you are a son or daughter of God? What does it mean that you are a child of God? This all comes home because in being united to the Son of God, 
we're told that you are likewise made a child of God. And that, it's just language we use all the time. Right? We say that all the time. Yeah, I'm a child of God or children of God. But think about that for a moment. Think about it maybe from a different angle. Let's just back up. Let's look a different way. You are a son of God because you are in the son of God. Right? What do sons have? What do they receive? Well, one thing that sons receive is an inheritance. Usually, especially in scripture, the firstborn son would receive an inheritance and the rest of the family would kind of you know, work around him in some sense. But think about how common it is among mankind for there to be fights between sons or between children over inheritance. Think of Esau who sold his birthright, his inheritance for a bowl of soup. Right? That's how Jacob ended up with it. And what did Esau want to do? He wanted to kill him. He wanted to kill his brother when he found out what he had lost. And isn't that just a constant, constant struggle? Right? That the sons of men fight one another, hate one another. The heir being fought for his inheritance, or the heir who refuses to in any way share or care for the rest of the family. But this is just a constant story throughout the human race. But think about Jesus, the Son of God, the firstborn Son, your Savior. He, without, without selling anything, right, without giving anything up, yet he has freely and gladly shared his inheritance as the eternal Son of God with you. He has, he has brought you in to share with him. How many human kingdoms and families have been destroyed over inheritance disputes and over who is the rightful ruler? But your Savior, the Son of God, who deserves all glory, right? all glory and all favor and all riches and all rule and all inheritance and all blessing and all honor, he gladly shares it with you. The one who was in the glory of the Father. Even this, he shares with you. Maybe think about it like this. Think about the alienation and grief that comes from being a bastard child, right? From not knowing your your father. Maybe this has been your experience, right? And if not, I know you can probably relate, right? What it would be like to be in the world without a father. Not knowing your father, you're lost, you're confused, right? You're aimless, feel alienated. And not just alienated from your father who you don't know, but also one of the roles of a father is to help to train up their child in how to see and interact with the whole rest of the world. So all of a sudden you're, you're alienated in some sense from everything else, from everyone else. It adds that element of distance in. Right? You think about what happens to a culture like ours with increasing fatherlessness. And it's just this, this alienation from everyone and anyone else. 
right? The alienation is because we are bastards. But if you have confessed Jesus Christ, if you have confessed that he is the Son of God, what does the scripture say? You're not alienated anymore. You're not a bastard son. You are a son of God. It's not even as though you are a son, a child of God, but you're like, you know, you were brought into the family, but you're still kind of a black sheep. It's not as though God looks on you as lesser. He looks at you through his son. If you are united to the son of God, this is how God the Father sees you. If, if you are united to him, the, the son of God, right? God himself he dwells within you. He abides within you and you abide within him. There is not distance between you and God if you have confessed him. Right? Glory to God. You're not kept at arm's reach. You are no longer alienated. You have a father. Right? And if that's not you, you can be. If you came here today and you think, no, I, I do feel alienated. God does feel distant and far away. He doesn't have to be. Right? You confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You believe that and you will dwell in him and he will dwell in you. Let's just take it from one more angle. Think on it like this. How rich this truth is. How rich it is that you are a child of God because you've been united to the Son of God. Think of what it took for the Son of God to save you, to become the Savior, as John said. What did that take? Think of the humiliation and the shame involved even of the one who is in the glory of the Father to take on flesh and simply live among us, let alone the, the shame of enduring the cross, of, of death, the humility, the humiliation. I was trying to think through this week how best to make this real, right? How best to make this really help us to feel what this is like and I thought of a story I heard from a, a pastor Tim Bailey and he tells a story about his own father who was a well-known man and in Christian publishing was a very honorable man was well known in his church right an upstanding man of the Christian community and Tim was not this way right this is this is a man who in his younger years was was uh, uh you know living a very profligate life he he was uh you know in all kinds of things, drugs and, and sleeping around. So he wasn't living as his father would have him. And at one point, his father actually kicked him out of the house because of how he was living. It got to the point where he had to remove him from the house. And so Pastor Bailey at the time, before he was a pastor, went and he lived in a house with a bunch of people just doing what he was doing, right? Living how he was living in shameful ways, in underhanded ways, right? In, in drugs and in a life of fornication. And at some point, I don't remember all the details of the story, but his dad heard that he was living in a home, in a house where he 
his son might be in danger. Right? His, his child might be in trouble. And he had somehow heard that maybe it was serious. He was maybe in serious trouble. And so somehow in the middle of the night, his father went looking for him and he had somehow found out where this house was. So in the middle of the night, he finds this house. You know, a, I don't know how you want to think of it, right? A party house, a drug house. And he just burst in the door and started to search every room until he could find his son, right? Just walking in on people, doing any number of shameful things because he needed to find his son. And it's amazing when Pastor Bailey tells the story, thinking about his father, the thing he focuses on is he talks about how, how much shame, humiliation his father had to endure to find him. Right? Looking through all these different rooms. Right? Just how humiliating that would be. To just walk into a house you've never been in. Nobody knows you here. It's middle of the night. Looking for your son until he finally found his son and just woke him up because evidently he was just asleep and just said, are you okay? Right? Are you okay? He just needed, he wanted to make sure that his son was okay. Now I'm not sure I told that exactly right. But I share it because it gives a sense of the humiliation, right, the shame that the, the Son of God had to endure in order to take on flesh, to live among us, to die on the cross, to be your Savior, and not just to be your Savior and to bring you close, but to bring you all the way to God. That you are united to him that he might abide in you and you in him, that you might be a full member with full inheritance rights in the family of God. Brothers and sisters, do you see the love of God, the love that you can abide in? Do you see the glory of the Son? You can be a son of God because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He sought you out, and blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we do pray that you would bring this reality that John speaks of home today. That you would help us to know what is your love. That, that you would help us to know what it means that we have been united to Christ by faith, that we are children of God. Lord, this is a spiritual reality, and so we need new spiritual eyes to see it, to know it, to receive it, and so we pray that you would make it known to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.